This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. So Mia Consalvo is, um, as you can see, she's visiting associate professor here at MIT uh, with the Writing and uh, Humanistic Studies program and Gambit, that's the CMS, so that's the space she straddles here. Normally, she's associate professor and director of graduate studies at Ohio University, the School of Telecommunications. Um, Mia's work straddles uh, gender, technology, and popular cultures. And the focal point, the place where that tends to be articulated the most is in the world of digital games and the world of the internet. And to that end, she has, uh, pu she's published a number of books, but two I want to mention. One with MIT Press, for sale out in the hall if you're interested. Cheating, Gaining Advantage in Video Games, MIT Press book. And the other's a book on, um, sorry, Women and Everyday Uses of the Internet. Uh, so this sort of speaks to that conjunction that she works in. She's currently working on um, the influence of Japan in the on the business and culture of digital games, and tonight's, tonight's talk obviously comes from that space. She's also researching the role of leadership and age in casual game players and performance, and that's a project she's doing for a games company. So she straddles the world of the academic and uh, the industry. That's big fish games, for those of you that are casual game fans. And she's working on a collaborative study of virtual worlds for the uh, for ARPA, IARPA. So uh, without further ado, Mia. Western otaku games crossing cultures. Thanks. Thanks, <clears throat> Thanks for coming. <laughs> um, first, let me shout out Jason Beggy back in the back. He's also working with me on the, uh, the casual game uh, project. We're studying the virtual world called Faunosphere. <clears throat> and um, this, what I'm talking about tonight is part of a new project um, that I'm working on. It's actually probably going to be pieces of two different chapters in that book on the role of Japan in relation to games and the games industry. So um, I really appreciate your feedback, especially um, as I work through some of these areas. And true to form, because I did write a book about cheating, I have my cheat sheet notes right here that I'll be referring to uh, a little bit since this is somewhat new to me. And so it's kind of the question um, that I'm starting with, or that this project takes, um, is what happens when games go global? And of course, games have always been global. Um, games have been sold around the world, especially um, if you think about Japan in relation to the game industry. It's been a central player um, for almost its entire history, yet we haven't really seen much scholarship that interrogates that relationship. Um, the role of Japan and the game industry. And likewise, um, games are global spaces for players. Um, games can come from one location and be played in a different one. People with different languages, cultures, backgrounds, and interests all play them. And especially now with online spaces and virtual worlds, they may all be coming together into the same space. And so I think that that makes them really key areas to investigate. And this is uh, just John Tomlinson talking about globalization in 1991. I think that it's probably even less coherent or culturally directed now than it was uh, when he wrote that. Just a few um, avenues to think about to get into this mode of thinking about globalization in games. I'm not going to focus on these really here tonight, 
But virtual worlds and games are global cultural products. They're made in specific places by specific people, companies with specific cultures. This is part of Linden Lab uh, just down the street. It's a very white male space producing Second Life, a game or a space that's um, enjoyed globally. And this is part of the development team for Final Fantasy Online, a very male Asian space of developers. And I'm not going to make any essentialist claims about you know, what they're building into games, but we really haven't seen much research yet on how um, culture, society, how the affordances and constraints of technology and workplace practices um, get built into uh, the games that we see. Likewise, the worlds themselves are transnational spaces. Um, they're places where people from different spaces can gather. Of course, this depends on where you're looking. I should point out, this is Second Life right here. Uh, Second Life is a place that allows people from different countries to gather on the same server and play in the same space. Other um, spaces like World of Warcraft are region locked or region encoded so that you, know, you are mostly playing with North Americans, like on the North American servers. So there, you can see there are tensions there as far as which spaces are open to everybody, which are closed, and how does that um, impact the kind of play, uh, what players expect, and the types of interactions. Um, but for some places at least, um, that is definitely an opportunity. Likewise, uh, this is Final Fantasy XI Online, which I'll be talking about in more detail in just a little bit. But it's a place where Japanese, North American, European, Australian players can all come together uh, and play. Likewise, um, hybridity is a way to think about um, games and players and virtual worlds. Hybridity is a really um, contentious topic. There, I, you know, there's no one agreed upon definition. We could spend the entire hour, uh, hour here talking about what hybridity might mean. I think one of its most useful functions is to challenge notions of essentialism. Um, interestingly, Tomlinson also wrote in 1991, none of us actually live in a global space where these processes occur. An information technology net network is not really a human space. Our everyday experience is necessarily local, and yet this experience is increasingly shaped by global processes. I would actually challenge that. You know, he wrote this in 91. I don't know that that's necessarily the case today. If you look at virtual spaces, uh, where many of us spend some of our time, and you know, the average online game player spends about 20 hours a week in these spaces, we are living our lives, or part of our lives, in these network spaces. Um, so I think that that's an interesting challenge to that. And likewise, you know, as games go global and they're crossing cultures, what happens when people from all of these different spheres come together in these increasingly human spaces? Um, the worlds themselves then become hybrid as we see a mixture, something like Second Life where you can build different elements. You can visit virtual Tokyo in Second Life. You can go to downtown New York or London, and these are often mashed together, uh, often right next door. And you also see with something like Final Fantasy, a different kind of hybridity emerging. People take the game space and what happens there and bring it back out into daily life. Um, this is someone's notes. Um, which he took in word about different players that he had partied with and his notes on you know, where he encountered them, how good they were as a player. Uh, you know, Mithra, who's a good puller but a subpar leader, and he's got his, his notes all set up. But it's uh, an incidence of different worlds kind of crossing the boundaries here. And finally, they're catalysts possibly for hybrid identities. 
you know, this is something Sherry Turkle talked about in the 90s, um, that virtual worlds, online spaces could be places where we could engage in identity play. I know that, I think that now we're probably not seeing as much of that identity exploration uh, that she might have been writing about. She was writing about a very specific subset of users. If you talk to, for example, players of World of Warcraft, uh, like male players, and say, why do you play a female avatar? Um, many of them will not say it's to explore the feminine side of myself. They'll say, oh, well, this character looked hot. Or, you know, they might say, you know, I wanted to see what a different storyline looked like because the storyline might change or how other people relate to you might change. Um, but it is a place where you can explore different aspects, possibly of yourself. This is one player, all of his different avatars across different virtual worlds. And... Um, it would be interesting to explore how you see people express different sides of themselves in different virtual worlds that might allow for different um, powers, opportunities that have different constraints and affordances. If this especially interests you, I'd really recommend Celia Pierce's new book, um, Communities of Play, I think it's called, where she studies the um, players from one virtual world that shut down almost with no notice, and they became virtual refugees. They uh, went from their world, which was the world of Uru, which came from Mist, and some of them settled in Second Life and built the structures there. Some of them went to their.com and uh, built a life for themselves there. They still met like in some other spaces. Um, the Mist people reopened the world. They kind of went there, but they still went back to like their Second Life in their spaces. But she really talks about how the new places increasingly shaped their sense of self, and also their group identity and how important that group identity was to them. Um, but I think that they're really rich in terms of looking at identity and, and you know, what's possible there. So now focusing on my own research, this is the first of two case studies I want to just give you a little bit of flavor about. Um, this is a study of the virtual world of Vanadiel, which is the online space of Final Fantasy XI online. This is the requisite screenshot of it. Um, for some of you who may not know, Final Fantasy sounds a little bit odd. Eleven. Um, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be that way. Uh, the original developer, Hironobu, Hironobu Sakaguchi, originally developed the first one, and it was intended to be his last game. Thus, he titled it Final Fantasy uh, for Square, now Square Enix. It sold so well, um, and he was going to leave the industry and apparently go back to school. But it did so well that he stayed, and now we have thus an increasing number of final fantasies. This is what the, uh, the space looks like within the game. <coughs> like I mentioned, um, Final Fantasy is interesting for a few reasons. First of all, it opens the servers to players from Japan, North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. They all can play together. Um, it's also interesting, not many people write about this. Um, it's playable on the PC the PlayStation 2 with a hard drive, and also the Xbox 360. It's one of the, the few online games that allows um, for those different points of entry. The game first started in 2002. It is still running seven years later, which is ancient in virtual world terms. And it's held steady at about 500,000 subscribers. It's definitely not in World of Warcraft territory. You know, it's down here, but it's got a very committed stable of players. And um, Square has just announced, actually, Final Fantasy XIV will be their next online game. All of the other ones are single-player games. 
but that will be the online game that's kind of the sequel to this one. So what I want to talk about mostly is this subset of players of this game that I call Western otaku. And it's not my term. Um, I borrow it from other people. But first of all, otaku uh, in Japan are kind of like this guy on the right. This is a screenshot from Train Man. And um, you know, they're seen as nerds, socially awkward, probably really big fans of manga and anime. They have lots of collectibles. They probably still live at home with their parents in their room. You know, they don't know how to interact with the world, especially with women. Um, and uh, you know, that's kind of their life. Even when I was in Japan and I would say uh, to people in interviews, what do you, how would you define otaku? They would be like, <laughs> you know, like somebody who's not quite socially or apt. And the Western version is somebody who may share many of those interests, but also is a kind of fan of the otaku and Japan and Japanese culture. And for those players, or for those people, um, Final Fantasy Online offers this really rich and interesting space. And I'm just going to talk about three key um, elements that I think are, are the attractions of the space for them, and that give them um, lots of opportunities to explore their interests. The first one is the history and lore of the game and of Japan. So for example, I mentioned this series. It started in 1987, and um, the games have been released steadily since then. I mentioned Final Fantasy XIV is next on the horizon. I fully expect Final Fantasy XXVI you know, sometime in the future. Um, they're not necessarily sequels to each other. There are elements of each game uh, that carry over. So for example, there are job classes that you'll see appear and reappear in the various games. And these are all jobs that appear in uh, Final Fantasy XI. So one of the interesting ways um, that this enriches the experience for these fans is, and some of them have not, are not active um, MMO, massively multiplayer online game players regularly. They came to this game because it was Final Fantasy. And so they have this deep experience, and they have this pleasure of the knowledge of the past games to help inform their playing. Likewise, um, in addition to job classes, there are creatures that carry over across the various games. Uh, this is the plushy version of the chocobo, which is a chicken-like creature. This is what it looks like in Final Fantasy Online. It's a creature that you can ride. At first, you rented them. Now you can um, hatch eggs and breed them, and I think race them. And likewise, there are other things like currency, um, different monsters, the reluctant hero. These elements um, do carry over across the games. Likewise, there are elements of Japanese culture that get built into Final Fantasy Online um, that these players can enjoy. So most MMOs typically feature festivals at different times of the year. And in Final Fantasy Online, you'll have a cherry blossom festival every spring. And within, it, within the game, the world itself does transform. So during the rest of the year, these just look like normal trees with green leaves. But during the spring festival, they suddenly bloom into these wonderful cherry blossoms. And likewise, there are these sitting spaces set up where if you've been to Japan in the spring, you know you can go outside and sit around and enjoy uh, the cherry blossoms. So you can do this virtually as well within the world. And you can enjoy some nice mochi rice balls with your friends. Um, they're just virtual rice balls, though. So those are you know, a few of the ways or a few of the elements of the game, either across the games that the players can take pleasure in or from Japanese culture itself. 
Of course, most importantly, it's a virtual world, which means that there are actually other people in it. Some people even like to play virtual world games as, as solo players, but that's actually pretty tough in uh, Final Fantasy Online. The game is not very casual user-friendly. You level an avatar from level 1 to 75, which takes a really long time. And from about level 10 onward, you really cannot solo play. You need to group with other people uh, to get ahead at all. And it's very specific within the game as far as optimally you want groups of six people within a very strict level range, a certain distribution of job classes, you go to specific locations at certain levels, and you kill certain monsters to gain experience points to level up. And if you don't know how to do that or are not willing to do that, you will go nowhere very fast in the game. So you really need other people. But for these players, it's also this place where they can encounter the other for all the good and the bad that that implies. I use that term very consciously. Um, there are certainly elements of Orientalism and racism going on, racism on both sides. But for this subset, it really is an interesting space for them to actually have conversations uh, with other players. So, for example, um, maybe a little difficult to see here, but at the bottom, this is the chat box. Um, the actions are in English, which would indicate somebody's using um, an English client, usually on their PC, but the rest of the text is in Japanese. You can opt to type on your keyboard. Um, if you're in Japan, you know, you've got the kanji enabled, and, uh, or you can switch to Roman version if you want. If you're in North America or Europe, you've got the Romanized version um, of your, your keyboard. And the game makers built in this system called um, an auto-translate system. Basically, you start typing a word like, let's say, hello. You start typing H-E-L, and you hit tab. And it comes up with a range of options for like, what it thinks you're trying to say, hello, help, that kind of thing. You tab down, select the one you want, hit return to enter. And when it goes out, people in North America can see hello, and people in Japan can see you know, hello in Japanese. And the problem was that the system is very functional in that there are directives for like locations, battles, um, weapons, but it's not very chat friendly. Hey, how you doing? What did you do last night? What, what did you think of this movie? And so players in North America, particularly this subset, figured out that the kanji was not actually missing from their client. It was just disabled. So um, post quickly sprang up across the forum saying, this is how you re-enable the kanji in the client. So that people who, for example, were learning Japanese could re-enable it and type with the kanji to be able to communicate um, with Japanese in their native language. In addition to language, there are also group norms uh, within the game space that players have had to learn. And they do differ across culture. One of them that I noticed uh, when I was playing, when I was in Japan, which meant that I was in Japanese prime time, so I was mostly playing with Japanese players, was how groups face death. Uh, because there are a couple of different ways to face it in the game. I mentioned it's not casual friendly. There's an experience point loss, which uh, WoW does not have. So we're tougher than they are. Um, but there are a couple of options when you die. Um, you can, for example, in Japan, if you die and you're in this battle, everybody's fighting around you, you go down, um, you can either wait for a white mage to come along and raise your character, 
thus resulting in less experience points lost for you. Not none, but less. And uh, you have a little bit of raised sickness that you've got to kind of, you're a little sick. So you've got to wait it out. But then you're still with the party. Alternately, every player has a home point that they can set their home point location to. You can teleport quickly to that location. Um, you, you have the full experience point loss, but you don't have the raised sickness, and then you must run back. In Japan, what I noticed was that in battles when people died, they would just quickly home point. They had set it very close to the original battle scene and then would just run right back, jump into battle. Sometimes they were so good you didn't even realize that they were gone. And um, this is just an example of one of the locations nearby a home point. Um, in contrast, and of course this isn't true 100% of the time, but overwhelmingly when I played, I would notice that uh, North American players would much rather wait for someone to raise them. Uh, this may have means even everything grinding to a halt, saying, well, I know a white mage who's over in the other zone. Could you call him? He's your friend. Okay, well, he's kind of busy. Could we wait five minutes? All right. Get him over here because there's less XP loss, and somebody would inevitably say, well, but my home point is really like far, far away because at the end of the battle, I just want to go back there. I don't want to have to run back. So there was more of a focus um, on the North American side of um, death being more detrimental to the individual. Like they didn't want as much to be inconvenienced by it. Whereas in Japan, um, more, more of the Japanese groups saw it as a temporary thing. They didn't want to inconvenience the group uh, and, and stop the battle. So there are these different ways that players have to learn to come together. Um, some of them involve being social, some involve play. But it's really an interesting space in that it does allow for those. And for the players who I mentioned who may be fluent in like learning Japanese or have learned these norms, um, it gives them the opportunity to um, have this what I call gaming capital. Um, it's sort of this currency within the world. You're known as an expert in some way uh, for something. For example, uh, this is um, Shigemo. She's an Asian American woman who's bilingual. And she created this guide, um, a language guide for playing the game. And this is just an excerpt of it. Because as I said, it's not so good with social things and even some specifically uh, game-related play. And this is for people who are you know, not fluent in kanji, but want to use the Romaji versions to be able to talk with people. And so, I mean, some of them are general. I'm not free. I don't have time. But um, can I see your equipment? <laughs> nice something you have. Is this expensive? Um, do you want to level together? You should need level Egemaska. You know, and it goes on and on. There are pages and pages of this. You know, what is your mog house decorated with? You know, where did you find you know, the location for the artifact armor drop? And this is, um, I mean, it's one of the most well-known sites in terms of if you're interested in this kind of thing. Everybody says, oh, well, have you seen Shigemon.com's site? You know, she's got a great reputation for doing this. Likewise, there are sites like JP Button, um, which is, again, bilingual players. Some of them live in Japan. Uh, some of them live in the West. But they do this really cool thing. Um, they will gather questions. So for example, they ask, they go to well-traveled Japanese sites, fan boards, and ask them in Japanese, what are the questions you most want to ask the English-speaking players of this game? They come up with them, they translate them, they ask the English-speaking players, then they translate them back and you know, give the answers back to the Japanese players, and then they do vice versa. 
And they're really interesting questions. Um, you know, they do ask a lot of times, you know, do you see racism in the game? Why, would you, why don't you want to play with players from a different culture? And so they're really, um, you know, kind of helping players understand the other side. They also do things like these essays where this one talks about, um, apparently, even though Japanese and Western players can exist in uneasy tension, everybody dislikes the Chinese players uh, because of Jap Chinese gold sellers. But they talked about why in Japan uh, the term for Chinese gold seller had changed over time. And lest you think um, that this is some happy, shiny world where you know, we're all going to sit together and hold hands and it will solve the globe's problems, again, this is a small group I'm talking about who really do want to reach out you know, and learn more about Japanese players and culture. For a lot of players on both sides, um, it can lead to a lot of tension and trouble. I'm not sure how well you can read this, um, but for example, the bottom, they're talking about Square Enix, the developer, and their money and their poor customer service. Um, this guy says, I hate to say it's the truth, they have a sizable player base, that would be Square Enix, talking about Japanese players that is culturally trained to not only not protest, but readily accept any questionable moves they might make. And this is some of you know, the more polite stuff. Um, there are people who talk about, at high levels, when you are partying with large groups, you compete to claim very rare monsters. And if the groups are from different cultures and countries, um, just the competitive atmosphere can easily lead to charges of racism, either how Square Enix is responding to people, oh, well, the servers are in Japan, so they, they just, you know, they really favor the Japanese, or, you know, just slurs about other players, um, which is really unfortunate. Part of the problem may have been, I just recently learned that when Square launched the game, uh, they launched it in Japan first, they never actually told the Japanese players that they were going to be opening the servers to English language players. So it was kind of a shock for them. Um, They've now opened all servers. You can move between them. And there's questions about whether the next game will actually have mixed servers or not. So we'll see whether there is a space even for people to have this possibility to talk with, engage with the other, or if it's going to be more foreclosed. So that's the first half. The second half, let me just take a sip of water. Um, the second group I'd like to talk about are players of mostly single player or maybe just offline video games, um, especially Japanese video games. And this all ties in, there's a context, you know, for at least the last 20 years, there's been this kind of cultural fascination with Japan and Japanese popular culture, you know, um, from the, oh my God, it's so wacky um, television shows to you know, the robots, the manga, the anime. This is the video game Phoenix Wright. Um, Hello Kitty. I'm really not sure what she's doing here, but it looks really interesting. And of course, this is not new. Um, the Impressionists were equally fascinated with Japan. So um, Van Gogh, this is Monet and his wife, perhaps the first form of cosplay I would submit to you. Toulouse-Lautrec. 
and our own Boston Museum of Fine Arts could equally be considered an early fan, an early collector of Japanese culture. It's got one of the largest selections in the world, um, including things like this. So really, um, and I should point also that there's been an increasing interest by scholars, uh, people like our own Ian Condry, um, Ann Allison, Susan Napier, uh, studying contemporary Japanese popular culture and what it means to Western audiences. Um, I have not really seen much engaging again with video games, so uh, it seemed like a good time to jump in with that. And so I mentioned this interest, and of course this is really just the most recent instantiation of it. These are um, three people from, this was at the New England Fan Experience. It was just held a few weeks ago, downtown Boston. It's a rather small uh, fan convention. There's a much larger one every spring here. But you know, these are people who are equally fascinated with Japanese popular culture, similar to the Impressionists. So my question was, and I'm still doing these interviews, um, but I was again interested in people who are especially interested in Japanese video games. Maybe it was their initial point of entry. Maybe they um, came to it from something else. But what did that mean for them? How did it translate into their life? Um, and what might it have prompted them to investigate? So I'm not going to read these to you, but I've just kind of highlighted interesting points. You know, people came to this in different ways. Um, some of them did come through um, anime that they saw on television growing up, you know. And again, people did not even necessarily know that it was foreign. You know, they're watching Sailor Moon or something, and it's like somebody had to tell them, oh, that's not from here? Oh, okay, well, that's kind of cool. Oh, would you like more about that? You know, I've got these other videos right here online. It's, you know, kind of like pushing the drugs. Um, but it was something that they initially found. Um, sometimes it was also the games themselves, either a father, a mother, a brother, somebody introduced them to it. And then it was just kind of, you know, the game was on. So um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the spectrum of interest that these people have. So for some of them, and, and it's not a hierarchy, um, but it all basically starts with the consumption. And so for some people, it actually, it stays there. That's what they're most comfortable and happy with. You know, they, they really don't want to go further. But for a lot of them, it goes um, deeper. It can include things like contributing to the culture surrounding this in the West, um, things like creating um, subs and fan fiction artwork. Um, for some of them, it leads to further cultural immersion, learning the language, thinking about studying abroad, possibly working abroad. And then finally, um, you know, for a few individuals even, it can influence their choice of careers. So with consumption, um, they talked about you know, what it was that made it so interesting and evocative for them. And it would come up that it was different from Western popular culture. And it's hard to say, um, you know, I'm not studying whether there is an actual difference or not. That's, that's not really my concern is to see like how accurate their interpretation of it is. But that's what they felt that it was, for them at least. You know, that it was different in some sense from Disney, um, from Hollywood, you know, those kinds of stories. Um, a few of them mentioned the artwork as being especially critical, the different visual style that they found um, that was uh, key for them. You know, and especially the depth of the story. And this was especially true for players of Japanese role-playing games. 
And you know, we can debate, again, how sophisticated the stories might be, but it was really about um, these different worlds, these complex characters that you could kind of escape into. And these are things that Susan Napier has also written about um, in her own work with anime fans. But um, just it was, it was really kind of essential element for them. I'm still playing around with this. Um, I'm curious just about the process of localization and what some people are now calling culturalization of video games because it's about much more than just translating the text. Um, and so I was interested in you know, how did individuals think about it um, or react to it. And this is something that's been a little bit more difficult to get at. I'm not sure how relevant this will be for most of um, the fans I talk to. Because a lot of them said, well, I'm not totally fluent in Japanese, so I couldn't play you know, both versions and then compare. So I don't really know. Um, you know I just know like, the English language version that I saw. And maybe I've heard things on the web. You know? A few of them talked about things like in Final Fantasy VII, Barrett, um, this character who you can kind of see faded in the background, who's black, is, they felt you know, almost ridiculously stereotyped as black. And they were unsure about why that was and, and what that meant. Um, you know, and they would talk about um, other kind of well-known tropes in the game, in the games that they played. But again, it's, it's something that I'm still kind of playing with. Moving on to then, you know, kind of what they're interested in doing. Um, some of them talked about, uh, let's see, the Megan here. The Phoenix Wright play that she's referring to, I showed you the screenshot of Phoenix Wright. It's a DS, Nintendo DS game. It's kind of a law adventure game, if, that, if you can imagine that. And um, it was so popular in Japan that they created a musical of it, <laughs> imagine. And she, when she was studying abroad, she took the train two or three hours to go see this musical. And uh, she has a recording of it. And I was, I was like, I'd like to see it. And she's like, well, I'm thinking about doing a translation you know, and, and posting it around to my friends. Um, so that's you know, one way that fans you know, are thinking about working with the material. Likewise, there are these things called scanlations, a scan translation. This is one I found on Flickr, Xenogears, Perfect Works, um, where a fan takes, you can see it a little better there, a text that's originally in Japanese that's probably not going to be translated into English. And usually this happens with manga. And then they translate it, slap the English translation on top of you know, the Japanese bubbles and put it online for people to see. And um, the guy who did this said specifically, you know, I had to work to get my Japanese language skills up in order to do this. You know, likewise, I was talking with a professor at another university who said she teaches Japanese history. She has a student in her class who's taking the class because he played a Japanese war video game, historical game, and he was interested in these figures and he wanted to learn more about them. You know, and for his project, he wanted to investigate this figure and the only texts available were in Japanese, so he was upping his language skills. You know, so it's a place for them to kind of give back. It's also you know, a place to investigate further. Again, um, for some of them, then it might lead to cross-cultural exchanges, the study abroads, or just um, asking them, you know, they ask questions about, okay, it's not just sushi and geishas and, and the cool hip stuff. What is daily life like for people? Um, you know, how can I really understand this other culture and these other people? You know, and they talk about the value of, of having friends and, and getting to learn from them about it to sort of get past that, that superficial view.
Um, likewise, this is a group that self-organized on the Square Enix website, uh, the Japanese Academy, where they are going to help each other learn Japanese. This was another thing I noticed. Um, you know, lots of people would take Japanese in, in high school or more likely college, but a significant number just sort of took it upon themselves to learn by themselves, which is amazing. Um, but you know, there they have, there they are. And then finally, the future careers, you know, a smaller group, but there were some people who, uh, one man I was talking about was majoring in linguistics and the differences between Japanese and English and had already spent significant time there, was planning to work there um, for a number of years, um, other people doing field work and going beyond a study abroad to think about uh, possibly doing internships and, and working there as well. And I know CMS even has graduates who are now working in Japan. So um, finally, they talked about the impact that they felt the Japanese popular culture had. And I just love Keith. <laughs> um, kind of says it all. Of course, I did not correct him, because it was such a great quote, uh, that American Idol is actually a British um, product first. But it has been thoroughly Americanized, and is definitely Western. Um, IJPC is, um, and he makes a very important point. He talks about imported Japanese popular culture. Because of course, we only get a slice you know, of, of what's come out. And certainly, fans have worked to widen that slice a little bit you know, with the things that they think we should enjoy. Um, but that there are definitely things that never come over. And then uh, you know, Jen talked about, uh, she's a white woman. She spent a semester in Japan and said, you know, it was my only period to experience what it was like to be a minority, you know, and that that had more of an impact on me than anything else. And you know, we talked about, and it doesn't seem quite as significant, but just the increasing um, significance or just the prevalence of the culture everywhere. You know, if you go into any Borders or Barnes and Noble now, you will see racks and racks of manga. And you know, now it's not like kind of the illicit uh, you know, import anime store. It's the official one where you can buy the licensed copies. And there are just more and more that are coming out all the time. And this is, again, the anime con that's held in Boston every year and some of the fans of it. So um, to sort of recap, you know, these are people who started with games or are very interested in the games themselves. And for some of them, um, that's plenty. And that's really what they enjoy. Uh, some of them do enjoy Western games. Uh, for some of them, this is just really the niche that they found that serves them best. But for others, then, they can go further. Um, they can learn the language. They might be interested in going beyond kind of the surface appeal to visits and to um, future careers. So to kind of sum up, and that's somebody's version of Okami, the white wolf. Yeah, I just had to include that. Um, you know, I think that games are a really key space to investigate. And I've talked a little bit about how they're global, you know, and, and what, what's important about them in that sense. But I think that games and, and the study of, of them can also enrich our understanding of globalization and our theories of globalization as well. Because, you know, with globalization, we talk about the importance of space and place and that those are really key. You know, and like Apodurai talks about the different scapes, the ethnoscapes and how um, people move and migrate much more than they did 
perhaps in the past or just at a greater rate now, and that that's something we have to take into account. These are virtual worlds. What is the space or the place? Is there a specific nation or cultural instantiation there? You know, and, and how can we understand what that is? Our players, you know, it would seem like in Final Fantasy Online, some of the players are act actively battling you know, over whose space it is you know, and who has the right to be there. And that seems like something that's incredibly important to think about, especially as you know, we have this challenge of, will we see more spaces like that that are open uh, to people from different nations or regions? Or you know, are we going to increasingly see region-enclosed, region-locked servers um, where it's you know, the French-speaking server and you know, the Japanese-speaking server um, maybe, you know, the Latin American server, you know, regions, nations, languages, but that we're bounded, you know. So I think it really points to that key investigation of space and those implications, and also just the challenge of language. Because for a lot of these players, you know, it wasn't that they were necessarily racist or, you know, held negative views of another culture. They just said, you know, I play this game for fun. I want to hang out with people that I can chat with, and it's just, I can't really do that in another language. You know, it's really difficult. And I don't know that we can solve this with an auto-translate system, even if it gets really good, maybe. Um, but, you know, that was the key challenge. You know, language is just going to be one of those things that keep, we keep returning to. So um, with that, it's very warm in here. I will say thank you. <laughs> Very much, Mia. Sure. Uh, questions. I just wanted to ask a little bit about your methods because obviously yeah. you've been talking to a lot of people and playing the game. Yeah. Clearly, it's something that, particularly Final Fantasy, is something that you like to do. How how are you? Uh, <laughs> no, I couldn't tell. <laughs> um, how? What are your methods? What are my methods? I mean, in general, what, 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 yeah. what do you do? They are generally qualitative and critical in nature. Um, for the second half, um, this has mainly been interview-based. And what I did was, when I started, um, I just found groups. Uh, usually, being on college campuses is very helpful because there's usually some anime group or J-pop group, something like that, where you can start to identify people. Um, I also had... Uh, graduate students who had blogs of, you know, who knew active people who, you know, were interested in Japanese video games. Interestingly, one of the guys that I interviewed, I was doing it on Skype, and um, I kept hearing a woman in the background shouting things that he should say, and he's like, get your own interview! And I'm like, yes, sign up for your own interview! So it was really, you know, I'm interested in a specific group of players. I'm not going for representativeness, so I'm really just kind of looking for people who lead me to people um, and, and investigating those. And I've done the interviews um, in person and via Skype. I think, yeah, and with this uh, set, I'm still doing them. There have been a few email versions. I don't like those as much. For some people, they feel more comfortable with that, and usually you know, I'll send them questions, they send me answers, and then I can just do follow-up emails with them. And for the first study, um, it grew out of, I had actually been studying Final Fantasy Online for the cheating book, and this was um, a play style and, and elements that I had noticed while I was playing that I hadn't thought as deeply about, and I've since started digging back in. 
um, you know, looking at the fan boards, finding the sites like JP Button and Shigemo.com. Some of them I knew about as a player, um, but that's kind of how I've been building off those. Um, you mentioned Japanese language, uh, and this is a motivation for students to get into that. So, yeah. uh, when I first started uh, in my career, I taught a little bit of Japanese, and I would ask my students, "Why are you studying Japanese?" and Many would say they wanted to read Mishima, they wanted to read Kawabata. Yeah. But today you can go all over the world and you will not find a single student with that motivation. But what you'll find is that in virtually every Japanese language program, including MIT and Harvard and, and in England and in Asia, 80 to 90% of the students, uh, at least 80 to 90% of the students are studying Japanese because of manga and anime. Mm -hmm. And it's just an incredible impact that yeah. uh, this has had mm -hmm. in the field. Uh, th the other thing that I've noticed is that, uh, uh, you know, the Japanese on the whole are not really familiar with this. And so when the students go to Japan, mm. these students go to Japan, and they would ask their Japanese language teachers about this, and they have no idea about this. Now, I've seen Japanese language teachers have study groups uh, to study anime because their stu students keep asking them yeah. about anime, yeah. and they have no idea what's going on. And so I'm wondering when these, you're in Japan, mm -hmm. uh, when these students, uh, you know, well, gung-ho about studying Japanese and anime in Japan, when they go to Japan, uh, do they find what they want or are they disappointed that you know, much of Japan is just not, you know, they don't care about this? So. Yeah, that was, you know, one thing I tried to ask about, you know, was it, did it meet your expectations or, you know, what were you thinking would happen when you got here? And I mean, it's, it really tended to vary across students. You know, for some of them, they managed to stay within a bubble of like the university that they were at with you know Western other Westerners. The more adventurous ones would kind of you know go out and try and make friends with other Japanese um, with Japanese uh, students or, or or talk with other people. Um, I think some of them were surprised at you know. That it did, they said, you know, well, it's not just, you know, everybody's not crazy about anime, you know. <laughs> Why is that? You know, we're so crazy about it here. And... Well, the Japanese are really confused about this as well. Yeah. With all these foreign... I know. <laughs> well, it's because it's the slice that we get, you know, and so it's yeah. sort of what they expect. But I think, the, especially the inquisitive ones, kind of move past it pretty quickly to say, well, okay, I'm here. What is it about here that I really want to investigate and, and talk with people and learn about what they find fascinating and interesting, rather than me telling them what I think is awesome about Japan. You know, I want to hear from them about just like their daily life and like what they think of college and what they want to do with their life and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, thank you. I'm, I'm very interested because years ago when I first started opening up my film music class to video game discussions, um, many of the students cared passionately about much earlier versions of Final Fantasy um, from the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, do you, are you doing any work that involves that area of the games and has that continued? Are, are the, the, the 500,000, you could say, are, are they... Uh, are there a passionate group within them who do a lot with the music? Or has that kind of moved away hmm. from the game into another space? With the music? Yes. Specifically? In other words, hmm. do, I know that there are people who buy these games' scores <laughs> yeah. and learn to play them and so <clears> forth. 
uh, are they necessarily the same people who play the games or are they other people as well? Do you know much about this? Yeah, excuse me, I'm not entirely sure. I know that um, for many fans of Final Fantasy, the music is a key part of it. You know, even within the online game, whenever you go into different zones, there's sort of a background music that you hear. And I remember the first time I went into this new zone with some other experienced players, you know, and they said, listen to the music, isn't it incredible? And, you know, you'd hear that a lot from people, that there was this appreciation of the soundscape that I've never heard anybody talk about in another online game. Um, but I don't know specifically, you know, whether, how, how much of the musical consumption uh, the single-player gamers are interested in. Do you think the music is still playing a vital role in the latest versions of the game? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people talk about how many composers, you know, outside of the people in Gambit, we're not allowed to comment, you know, how many people know the composers of music in video games? And with Final Fantasy, you know, lots of people who play those games could tell you about Nobuo Uematsu and, you know, who's scoring on those games. So it's definitely part of, like, that niche. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm Nick Siever. I'm a grad student in CMS. Um, I, I know you said it was a can of worms, um, but I have a question about hybridity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I guess there's, there's sort of two kinds of hybridity that, I'm, that I, you sort of alluded to. I guess one is sort of cultural between Japanese culture and, I guess, American culture specifically for, for your work now, but, you mm -hmm. know, other cultures. Yeah. But then also, uh, like, techno-social hybridity, like people who are also people and yeah. avatars. And I w just wanted to know if you could talk a little more about whether you saw those two relationships between Japanese and the West and between people and their online avatars, if there are <clears throat> um, ways in which those relate in the hmm. interviews that you've had or, you know, whether people, how those, that's facilitated. Yeah. Good question. Let's see. As far as the, uh, the techno-human, we'll start with that one. Uh, the relationship between individuals and their avatars. Um, Final Fantasy Online has, it's unique in so many ways, but another way that it is, is you have one avatar and you can change job class with the same avatar. Other virtual worlds like World of Warcraft, you have one job class per avatar. If you want to try a different job, you have to start a new avatar. With Final Fantasy, you can switch. Um, and this allows for you to play with the same avatar for a very long period of time and you get your reputation established pretty well. However, people would still sometimes start a different avatar of a different race because they have different attributes. And I would notice like within guilds or social groups um, where people knew each other from, you know, previously, nobody would really refer to each other by their daily life name. They always referred to their avatar name. And even if they were playing with a different avatar than their main one, they would be referred to by their main avatar name, which could be incredibly confusing if you logged in in the middle of conversation, you know, because you see, you know, um, Nobuo saying something and somebody saying, I agree with you, Mark, and you're like, what? You know, and you know that Mark isn't this person's real name either. But there was this slippage, you know, it was like a central kind of avatar identity that attached to an individual um, that, that crossed that technical human border. Um, I'm not sure about the other ones. I, mostly, I was just thinking when people do that kind of, like, form those kinds of hybrids, is there yeah. something about 
about occupying that space as an avatar or as a sort of you know techno human avatar that enables this like cross cultural thing. Like do, when you say the you said the Western otaku sort of um, are very interested in the Japanese otaku as like a as like a um, you know sort of category of person, and is that enacted in any way mm. at, at, in these avatar relationships? <clears throat> Structurally, there's one thing I think of, but I don't think it's what you mean. But um, in this game, you can your avatar can bow, and uh, especially when parties form, uh, Japanese parties form, everybody bows to each other at first as as a greeting. But you don't see as much with northern, with North American or Western groups, um, but Westerners will do it if they're part of a, of, of a mixed group. So there's that mixing of a traditional, you know, physical culture with the virtual culture. Um, That's really neat. I think Sheila has it. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Sheila. I'm also a CMS grad student. Um, kind of just going back um, to the, the cultural kind of exchanges um, that are happening, I was wondering if there are any sort of historical precedents um, for this kind of thing. Um, you know, people getting into a culture through um, a media. Um, either way, I mean, I'm sure there are, but are there any that are specifically relevant to this <clears throat> case, um, and <clears throat> what can we learn from the history of this? Well, like I mentioned, the Impressionists, you know, and their interest in Japanese culture, and, um, you know, for some of them, it was really about going to Japan, learning from, you know, like if there were artists, Japanese artists, about their style and their use of color and form, you know, and then bringing that back. For others, it was really much more of a surface interest where um, basically they saw imported artifacts in stores and or shops and you know bought those and then incorporated them in you know and some of them expressed this total fascination and they had never been there in their life um, so you know I think in that way you can see sort of a parallel of you know uh, people who may have you know a certain kind of interest a, I don't know fleeting is the right word but you know, an interest that doesn't go beyond a certain depth and then others who are motivated to, to go further. And, you know, some of these artists would actually spend years there, you know, living and, and kind of learning from Japanese artists. And you would see the same thing as well with Japanese artists coming to, um, especially Europe. They didn't think that the U.S. was as great a place. Jing <laughs> uh, Wang, is this working at all? Okay, all right. Uh, Jing Wang, uh, Chinese uh, Culture Studies, FLL. Um, I, I, uh, I have a question piggybacking on the first question on on method. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there is an increasingly large number of young uh, culture anthropologists or culture studies people who do this kind of new ethnography on popular culture, and uh, in that context, the boundary between the researcher and the fan is eroded. So <coughs> in this case, I think I'm wondering about the participation research, you as a player. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how your interactions in the game, in Final Fantasy, with the Japanese players, right. how your own participation, your, your experience, com uh, complements or conflicts with the findings that you presented to us. Okay, great Thanks. question. You've activated my bonus slide. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, with the last one, and this could actually be the future of media studies as well, but we need methods to better study these activities. Um, 
I mentioned Celia Pierce before and her work. She actually has a part of her book is about studying virtual worlds and you know how do you do that because it's not like a space like this where you could stand unobtrusively in the background and people might notice you but you're not forced to take part. You know, no, no pressure. <laughs> With a virtual world you have to play. You know, you have to be part of it and other researchers have written about how really your, um, your credibility as a researcher can be partly based on your credibility as a player. You know, of course you don't have to be an elite level 75 you know, job class and every job and you know, be online 24-7, um, but if you just kind of show up with a level one avatar stuck in the beginning areas, you know, people are gonna ask what's wrong with you. Um, as far as my own experiences, you know, I experienced many of the, the frustrations and the pleasures myself, you know, when I was playing in Japan because, you know, at the time I could converse a little bit in Romanji with the Japanese players, um, but <clears throat> like a lot of their chat, they use kanji, which was just beyond me. And we would be in parties and we could certainly communicate well enough to know where to go and what to do and, you know, how to level up. And that was what most people were there for. But, you know, I could tell that they were sort of chatting about things and, you know, I felt kind of apart from, from the group. Um, so that, you know, definitely informed, you know, my sense of like the limits, you know, of like the auto-translate system. You know, and likewise, talking with players in my, um, my guild, <clears throat> several of them were fluent in Japanese, and they would be asked to serve a lot of times as um, mediators. You know, a friend would say, I really want to join this party. They're all Japanese. Can you vouch for me that I'm a good player? And they would go in and, you know, and be kind of the cultural facilitator, and it, it, and it would work. So, you know, you could see where, like, kind of some of the, the more um, fluent people could gain the status in this capital uh, because of that ability to tra traverse both spaces. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a really key thing. You know, like, how do you play and study at the same time? You know, because also if you're in the middle of battle, you're like, well, I can't stop to take notes. <laughs> you know, everybody will be dead, and that's really bad. And likewise, um, just while we're here, we haven't really seen any good political economic analysis of you know, these, the, the online spaces or you know, the, the single player games, just kind of the cross cultural game industry and, or, or just comparatively across games. Um, you know, there's been a little bit now with like Chinese gold sellers, um, but again, these are still games made in national spaces. You know, Second Life is made primarily in the United States. What does it mean that players come from around the world and use it, you know, and what do they think about the, uh, the ideologies that are built in to the game? Thanks. <coughs> Hi, I'm Hi. Jason Tachi. I'm studying uh, games and geek cultures and cool. assistant professor at Pine Manor. Um, I guess I'm wondering to what extent you'd say that the sort of Western otaku uh, subcultures or cultures are kind of predicated on technological development. Um, I guess I'm wondering, like, like the online component and even the sort of like rudimentary translation sort of thing, is clearly something that you know wasn't there, you know, several years ago. Yeah. And and yet, you know, we're still talking about people playing on a game with PlayStation Two level graphics. <clears throat> so I, I guess yeah. I'm wondering, um, to what extent the technological development sort of allows for this culture to exist, or really isn't that important after all in terms of them being able to do what they want to do and mm -hmm. belong to this? I think it's definitely increased the reach. 
the spread of things, you know, like the, um, like the scanlations and even like the anime that you see hosted on different websites. You know, you could before this, you know, go to if you lived in, you know, a big enough city or region, you know, a, a shop where they might have some or you might know people who know people. I mean, you know, I remember, and this isn't intercultural at all, but like when Buffy the Vampire Slayer was first out and I missed, you know, the first half of the series, I bought VHS tapes off of somebody on eBay, you know, just because like that was the only way that I could do it. And now it's just so much easier. You see just the volume of it increase. Um, there were certainly people doing it prior to this, um, but it's just enabled, um, you know, a greater number of people and, and a wider reach of it. Um, it also raises questions then about, you know, technological fluency, you know, and who might feel left out because uh, either they don't have the tech uh, standards or ability. Final Fantasy Online, again, you can actually, I think you can still play it on a 56K modem, which was a re one reason I started playing. It was the only thing... I'm, I lived way out in the country at the time and I had a dial-up modem. It was the only online game that was supported. <laughs> Every, all the others need broadband. Um, so it is one that does allow for that. Bless you. Hi, um, my name is Nina Huntiman. I'm a professor of media studies at Suffolk University. My question may be beyond the field that you've even looked at, and I think it has to do specifically with the single-player games or, you know, console-based games. But I know that people are employed within the industry to particularly make translations for games that are going to be shipped yeah. outside of the U.S. Do you have any sense of what that process is like? Like, what is the industry thinking about when they yeah. are thinking about translating mm -hmm. these games? Not just language, right? But mm, there must right. be other things. Yeah. No, I've been investigating that as part of the book, too, um, which I didn't talk as much about tonight. But... Um, there have been some great sessions at um, the Game Developers Conference on localization. And some of them have start, started to refer to it as culturalization instead because they think that it goes far beyond just language translation. Uh, Richard Honeywood used to be the head of localization for Square Enix. And he talked about how what they wanted to do was create a game that would not feel foreign to a player. You know, that didn't feel kind of strange. And so you have to do things like not just the literal translation, but change jokes so that people get things like maybe there's a reference to a television show. Phoenix Wright was terrible for this. You know, they had to completely rewrite the script because there were so many jokes that reference Japanese television shows and movies and pop culture figures that they said no one in the West will ever get this, right? And so they have to do that. Sometimes they change the artwork uh, to change the visual style. They may change music. Um, there are what may seem like silly things to us, but um, you can't refer to Taiwan as a nation if you want to sell the game in China. They get a little touchy about that. Um, so there are all these different things that um, kind of go into considering the localization process. And interestingly, some of them, you know, they talk about culture. Some of them are really just avoiding um, censorship from the government. That's really the culturalization that they're talking about. Um, but then it's also interesting what they feel, you know, might be too cultural, culturally specific. And some of the fans actually are opposed to localization, the real hardcore fans. You know, there's always one more hardcore fan because they want those specific references because they know all those aspects of culture. And the game companies are like, yeah, no, we can't make the game for all two of you. You know, we need people who are going to appreciate it. 
And um, there are games that do have that flavor of foreignness, like Okami, which is the little dog guy that I showed you. And for some people, you know, that level is uh, increasingly interesting. You know, it incorporates Japanese history, legend, a definite art style. Um, it uses calligraphy. You use calligraphy as a weapon in the game. It's very cool. So there's, there's that side to it also. Uh, my name is Alex Lovett. I research with C3. Um, so I have two really unrelated questions. Okay. Um, the first one is really based on your title. Um, a lot of the research that I do outside of C3 um, has been on otaku discourse. Oh. Um, so. Japanese otaku? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And American, okay. if you could call it that. Um, but I guess the real question is, why do you specifically use otaku? Um, when nowadays a lot of the identity politics really revolve around otaku being uh, economic consumers rather than really hardcore fans um, versus in America where it's still kind of the fan base identity that's prevailing above fans buying a lot of stuff. Um, the second question would be relating back to the concept of hybridity. Mm -hmm. um, I think Final Fantasy is really interesting because it's one of the Japanese games that actually made it here. Um, yeah. But there's a huge fan base of uh, video gamers and anime fans, et cetera, who are playing games that will never be imported yeah. here. And have you looked into those specific games at all? Because I know that there's an extremely niche community there. But I wonder if it kind of relates to what you said earlier about workplace limitations, in that you see very large communities playing these games in Japan, but you never see mm. the industry really trying to push it out beyond a Japanese market. Yeah. Um, good questions. Let's see. The first one, I guess I would say that I noticed the use of the term otaku, and it was mostly from the Western fans, and so that was one reason that I had chosen to use it. As a, I didn't really ask the, the Japanese, you know, at that time. And I asked them, see, I was in Japan in 2005, and when I asked about otaku, it was mostly still that fan discourse. So that's probably shifted, but I'm mostly focusing, I guess, right now on the Western one, so, and they still seem to, to use that. As far as the hybridity goes, um, hmm. I'm curious about, as part of the book, I'd like to look more at some of the even more sub-communities that do things like the fan subs of the games that will never come over, um, just to see kind of the work and the labor that they put in and how that's valued and how that circulates. Um, and now I'm forgetting the rest of your question. Um, it, it's mainly just how much work have you been doing beyond, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's mainly the, uh, how, how much work are you putting towards um, games that aren't really making it over here but are finding extremely niche communities, um, which also have large communities over in Japan? <clears throat> right. I, um, with, the, with the individual interviews, the second part, I was asking just about their general experience with games. So they may have been fans of obscure games that never came over, you know, and a few people mentioned games like that. I haven't been looking yet at specific communities of, like, those smaller games. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm curious about that particular aspect, but it's something I haven't focused on yet. Uh, my name is Ron Adams. Uh, I was curious about 
with the multicultural uh, MMORPGs that you were studying, yeah. uh, were the frustrations and uh, problems that the, the different cultures were seeing, were they the same kind of problems over and over again on both sides, or were there unique uh, frustrations uh, on each side? Um, well, the language aspect was common. And you know you could see this, um, the JP button, the, the questions that go back and forth as far as I want to be able to just chat with people, you know, <clears throat> and I'm monolingual or, you know, just only middling in this other language. And um, let's see, I mentioned like the death thing. There were other group norms that uh, were common. Uh, there, there, were, there was another difference that I saw in group formation <clears throat> where in Japan, um, when I played, the expectation was, you know, I mentioned you have to have like six people in a group in this certain configuration. There was a certain period in the evening, like right after dinner, you could signal your avatar so that you were looking for a group. All of a sudden, like the population exploded with people looking for group. Groups formed. Our group would come together, travel to the location that was appropriate for their level, fight for three to four hours. Everyone would thank one another, disband, and log off because most of them were slightly older than the US players and they had to go to work the next day. Um, and that was how a group worked. In North America, there was much more of a system where people would kind of log on at different times. A group might form. You would go, maybe somebody said after an hour, oh, I've got to go make dinner. Um, I found a replacement. He's on his way, but I've got to leave. And you're like, okay. And then you just sit there and you wait for the replacement to get there. And then somebody else is like, oh, and by the way, I've got to leave in 15 minutes. And you're like, okay. And there was much more of this expectation that a party was, it had sort of a revolving door, you know, and that downtime was to be expected because people had lives and you, it just wasn't like a, like a movie that started at a certain time. And this caused real frustration among you know, Japanese and Western players until people started making etiquette guides about not just the language, but saying, hey, if you are in this group, please know that that's kind of the expectation and, and don't be surprised or upset if it happens. So a, that was another thing that was common, you know, a common uh, problem among the different groups. Hi, um, John Lim from Harvard GSD. Uh, I've got a tangential question about um, the relationship between the fan culture and the subsequent movies that came out from it, like Final Fantasy, the movie, and um, <coughs> Adventure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, um, would you uh, elaborate a little bit on what your take is on when they choose to make a movie or when <laughs> they choose not to? Because the movies are very specifically uh, spin-offs from the game itself. And so I was just wondering if you have yeah. an opinion about that. Advent Children is, Spirits Within was its own thing. Right. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, I think Square Enix has just sort of realized that Final Fantasy VII is still so eternally popular mm -hmm. that they're just trying to milk yeah. that cow as much as they can. Um, and they're just looking at different avenues you know, for um, ways to you know, get their stuff out there. And, um, Likewise, they're also looking more globally. Mm -hmm. You know, like we were talking about how, you know, some games never get released. Um, one problem that Japanese developers are facing is that, you know, the Japanese market, there's a graying of the population. So um, there's this decline in sales there. 
And if you've been there, you can see it's like if you go to a video game store, almost no Western games. I mean, there's a few, but very few. They really control that market, but their share of the global market has been shrinking, and they're trying to recapture that. And some of that is through different media forms that may appeal or, you know, different games. On a lighter note, um, sorry, uh, which level are you at from 1 to 75? <laughs> <laughs> When I, s I had to stop playing to finish the book on cheating, uh, <laughs> irony, but I was level 63. <clears throat> Don't applaud. <it's laughs> um, just a <coughs> comment, a uh, very brief one. Um, it seems like a lot of your work is behavioral. You're, you're looking at behavior, the way in which people uh, you know, are interacting in various environments. And, here now, your, your project is really across cultures. Um, and one of your topics has been cheating. And so I'm curious whether you've dis discovered any differences in approaches to cheating across these cultures. And this has been something that's uh, emerged in any of this work. <clears throat> I, um, I did not go into as much depth with the Japanese people that I talked to about cheating. Um, it's such a loaded term that even if you have rapport with people, even, you know, like American students I talked to were like, I never cheat, you know, I don't cheat at all. Or I use a walkthrough and that's it. I don't cheat against other people. And, um, you know, the few people that I talked to in Japan about cheating, it just, um, it, was, it was much more difficult to, to get comfortable enough to, to talk about it. In the game itself, um, in the online version, there are problems with cheating. Um, there's the gold sellers and there's people who use bots. There are fish bots. You can set up your character to fish. Exciting, I know. <laughs> Overnight for you and gather fish and sell them as resources. And Square Enix has been really active in trying to ban people who use those. And that's cut across um, the entire player base. You know, so it's, it's not like it's culture specific as far as the cheating goes. Um, but I, there's, I'm trying to think, if there's really been any cross-cultural analysis of cheating. And I really don't know of a lot, much, if anything. You know, at first, um, one interesting difference, this is not cross-cultural, but cross-gender. When I was doing the research, I could not find more than a handful of women who would say that they cheated in a multiplayer game. And, like, the industry people I talked to would confirm this. I'd say, who are your cheaters, you know, like in Counter-Strike? America's Army, they're like, young adult, male, blah, 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 blah. And I had this like five to six page analysis of gender and cheating all written up. And then I met the people who make Wyville, which is uh, this browser-based game. It's like math and science puzzles. It's for tweens. And somewhat by accident, their player base is like 70% female. And um, I talked to them about cheating, and I was like, so what, like, th those girls don't cheat at all. They're like, oh, they cheat all the time. I'm like, really? <laughs> Tell me about it. And I mean, they would, you know, they would create the walkthroughs and the answers and post them on their websites. They engaged in scams in the game where they would, clams were the currency and they would bilk other players out of their, newbies out of their clams. And I was like, what's going on here? And I think it has something to do with, you know, a space that you feel comfortable in. You know, and if you are part of the majority, you probably feel comfortable engaging in certain behaviors than if you're a minority. Um, but that's as far as I've gotten with like a differential analysis of cheating. 
and who cheats. Hi, uh, Miranda Banks, Emerson College. Uh, I'm to kind of go off of that. I'm I'm curious about the people who you've interviewed, and I'm wondering if any of them have been people who were Japanese Americans coming into the game, or if within that list of kind of Western players, <coughs> there are people you know kind of differences that you started to see between those players of how you know what interested them, and then I guess also. Uh, Gender-wise, if you saw mm -hmm. any differences in terms of what what aspects of the game they were most interested in, or what it led, you know, what that yeah. next interest was. That yeah, led. good good question. Um, let's see. Japanese. I haven't spoken with any Japanese Americans yet. A um, couple of Canadians. <laughs> and uh, let's see, who else? About roughly equal men and women. And they've all been 18 or older, so I haven't talked to any children yet. And as far as breakdowns go, like, uh, I obviously can't say anything cross-culturally. And even the gender, looking back, it's probably significant that I didn't talk about it, which means that I didn't see any clear difference yet. And I'm still doing these interviews. Um, so if you know anyone, you know please put them in touch with me. But I haven't seen anything specifically yet about, you know, women are more likely to do this or, you know, men are more likely to go to Japan or something. Um, hi, um, I'm Jennifer. I'm a, an undergraduate at CMS. I'm also the vice president of the anime club here. Um, yeah. So kind of similar to that question, I'm just kind of wondering uh, a little bit more about the people that you um, interviewed. Like specifically as a fan, I've noticed that there's a lot of tension in like otaku fan base because there's a lot of people um, like some people feel superior to others because they know more about Japanese culture and then there's also the ones who um, say derogatory terms about people who like Japanese culture too much and things like that. <laughs> I was just wondering um, like from what categories the people you interviewed mostly fell into? <clears throat> well, let's see. I guess that would be a self-definition, so I'm not sure, you know, how I would uh, go. I could ask them what level of fan, but everybody always thinks that there's somebody more hardcore than they are. You know, the people who teach their kids Klingon, right? So it's hard to know that you've gotten, like, the ultimate um, person. I guess one distinction I saw were probably the people who, like, stayed at the consumption level, you know, who said, you know, I really enjoy the stories. Um, but, or maybe even tried to learn a little bit of Japanese, but, you know, I remember one woman specifically said, you know, I like where I am. I, I really have no interest in going to Japan or, you know, doing anything further. It's really, you know, about that for me. And I was mostly talking about it in relation to games and, and the games that they played. So I didn't delve into as much about, like, um, you know, I asked them about their interests in anime, but maybe not, and, and like, how much they watched. Um, but I didn't ask about them in relation to how they place themselves in relation to other fans. It was more about their relationship with the material. Just, uh, I, oh, if I understood Jennifer's uh, question correctly, I think she was asking about the sampling, whether your sampling of the otaku is, quote unquote, representative of the divisions uh, is, is that what <clears throat> you're saying? You're, you're, uh, yeah, she, she was asking about Okay. Um, it's been purely based on who will talk to me. 
so um, it's not like I was been able to know enough about like a fan base to know who's where and then to kind of pick, which is again why I'm saying I'm not hoping to rip. I probably can't even represent all of a Western otakudom, but um, getting a flavor for how they feel about their relationship um, with Japanese popular culture. Hello, um, Hillary, CMS grad student. Um, I can't tell if this question is very particular or very broad, but I'm interested in the transnationalness of the games mm -hmm. and self-segregation, because it is really interesting that the, I think you touched on it, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, it is very interesting that they're making transnational servers or not region yeah. locked, but at the same time, it seems like there's just self-segregation anyways because <coughs> of the language problems. And yeah. I'm wondering like what parts are built into the game that allow that and don't allow that besides where the servers um, allowing people to come from mm -hmm. like it could be that they could build a game where you just have to run into people that speak Japanese and have to do something with them you know and maybe I don't understand enough about the game but so what what sort of allows for that self-segregation and what right makes people sort of have to run into each other and, and deal with each other just so we could think about future games yeah what might um, yeah. increase cultural exchange and what keeps it from happening well as far as like self-segregating like I said the limitations of the translating system you know, you can get together. The game forces you to get together with other people because, you know, you have to group in order to advance. And there may be times when it's just the only party available is one that doesn't speak your language. And I think nine people out of ten would take that party because they want the experience points. Um, and also, just practically speaking, time zones, you know, who's going to be around when you want to play is going to shape, you know, your experience. It is different on weekends than it is during the week and you just find people kind of awake all the time, which is typical MMO behavior. Um, so those are, some of the, those are some of the ways that it gets limited. Um, and yeah, I'd be curious to see, you know, like if they offered people a choice, which server you want to go to, like if there would be any mixing or not, you know, if it would just be very negligible. Um, I don't know, I mean, places like, I mean, there are other ones that mix like Second Life and also EVE Online. Um, they're open to players from all different countries. Scott Osterwal, Research Director. Um, does this form of otakudam exist in other uh, Western uh, societies? I mean, is, it, is this a very American thing, or are there... It's Canadian, too. Uh -huh. I would... Are there European... I would claim Canadians yeah. as part of it. But uh, any evidence that, that Europeans, uh, that they're European hmm. otakus um, in any large numbers? <laughs> I don't know if that falls into your, yeah? Well, there's Clara. <laughs> 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 um, I haven't done enough interviews with them to say for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that there is a definite level of it um, because the European servers are fairly popular, mm -hmm. you know, when they opened up the EU servers. Um, but I haven't specifically studied... Um, European players. I was just trying to yeah. see whether this was a distinctly American thing or whether it seems to be much more pro North American thing. Yeah. Well, no, and I also talked to people from Australia. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I have a comment about that, actually, because um, Philip Tan uh, Gambit. Um, it's it seems like in in Europe, at least from from what I can tell, 
with anime and manga, they've had a much longer tradition of importing and subtitling or translating or dubbing uh, work that, that, that has come from Japan or Asia in general. It seems like it, it, it's a lot, I think it got normalized earlier. Um, you know, uh, uh, animators like Miyazaki are better known um, uh, in 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 France, for instance, uh, than than in the U.S. So so uh, I I I have no data to back that up, but but uh, but I think that's one of those things where since they were since they had to import and subtitle all the work coming in from Europe anyway, uh, they kind of already had the facilities to do that for Japanese. But I'm I'm not so sure if that extends to games though, because mm. games have their own problems in the European Union. Uh, uh, in um, in terms of different kinds of uh, uh, countries having different standards in what's <coughs> in what they will allow in in, in, in yeah, the localization is different. Mm -hmm. Interesting. A lot of the localizations, like from Japan, will go be translated into English first, and then into figs, French, Italian, German, Spanish. They don't even get like the original Japanese too if they don't have the resources. Hi, uh, Jason Vegas, CMS grad student. Um, this was just a minor point in your presentation. Um, you had said earlier that um, like avatars are a way for players to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you had a sense of like how much that choice is a matter of expression and how much of it is just min-maxing. Um, so like for me personally, you know, whether my character is some scantily clad female or some hulking stereotypical guy, like <clears throat> it's usually more about like damage output or defense or you know it has to do more with the game yeah and, I, and yeah i have no sense of like you know am i normal like that or abnormal okay <laughs> well um i won't comment on that. <laughs> what um what i can say is uh square enix does a, a census every year of players of the game and the avatars that they choose and like the jobs that they have and the levels that they're at and there are uh five races within the game. There's one they call Hume, which is pretty much human. And then there's uh, the Taru Taru, the Mithra, the Galka, and the elves, the Elvon. The Galka are these big hulking dudes, and they're, they're only male. And they're I think they're consistently the least chosen avatar. And they're, like, their strengths, like, they have great strength as an attribute. So if you wanted to do, like, a warrior class, they'd be a natural choice. But they're not always selected you know, for, by people who choose the warrior, which suggests to me that people are thinking to some degree about aesthetics um, rather than, and, and there are people who definitely min-max. You know, they choose a, a character they're not crazy about looking at because they know it's got these skill attributes that they want. Um, and it's, the game itself is very limited in terms of like, the type of avatar you choose. There were times when my avatar, which I didn't show you, I'd be in a group of six people, and we all have the same avatar with the same face and same hair. It's a little embarrassing, you know. You're like, it's like wearing this. Everyone wears the same dress. Imagine wearing the same avatar to the same party, and you're like, oh god. Uh, so, in that sense, like, those are more limited in terms of expressing yourself. Um, but there, there is a sense of like, not everybody is. It's about min-maxing, and you saw this also through gear choice and like use of um, non-functional costuming, which people would sometimes pay great amounts of money for some item that they could wear, 
like a flower in the hair or some jacket that did nothing in terms of stats, but it was like an expensive object you could kind of flaunt. You obviously had a lot of money. You would wear it about town, <laughs> you know, when you were out of battle. Okay, seeing no more waving hands. Mia, thanks very much for sure. sharing this work in progress, thanks. and uh, we look forward to seeing it.